stories once told of a young shepherd boy who was out in his father's fields overseeing those sheep when he looked off on the hillside beside him and saw what he believed to be the most beautiful flower he had ever seen. He made his way toward that flower because he had hoped that he might pick it and take it home with him to plant, perhaps even beautify his mother's garden. But as he drew the flower from the ground, he heard a rumbling and looked up and noticed it was as if a great door had been opened in the mountainside before him and it had swung open on beautiful oiled hinges. Being curious as any young man would have been, he then made his way into that mountainside, there carrying the flower with him, and entered into a great room, one that was completely filled with gold and silver and precious jewels, even diamonds. And so he immediately began to collect those things. When he had gotten his arms filled and all of the pockets on his garments filled, he turned toward the door to make his way out, and a loud voice cried from behind him and said, Don't forget the best. Well, he was puzzled by that, and he looked around. He could not find anything any better than what he had in his own hands. So once again he moved toward the door and the voice cried louder and said, Don't forget the best. This time he was a little more puzzled and looked around and certainly he thought maybe he had missed something, but he hadn't. So he finally made his way out of the door. And when he appeared on the outside and the sunlight began to gleam upon what he had in his hands, he looked down and what had once been gold and diamonds and silver and all such things had turned to dust. And he heard the voice cry again and say, You forgot the best. The voice went on to say, The best was the flower that you had in your hand that was the key to the vault to all the riches you had seen. You say, preacher, that cannot be a true story. That must be some sort of fable, and if you were to say that, you would be correct. But I have come to know that many times the best is forgotten because the best resource, the key to the vault of all the blessings of God are found in one word, and that is prayer. If I could only pray, there's coming a day in your life, if you have not already encountered it, when you will realize, not that it's not already the case, but when you will realize that prayer is the greatest thing you have at your disposal. When you will find yourself, if you will, at wit's end, not having any idea upon yourself which direction you might turn, you will notice that prayer is all that you have. Now, I hope and pray that we don't have to get to that point. But I know concerning self, I have, I have found the treasure in prayer. If you want to open your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to continue our study through the Sermon on the Mount, noticing to begin with this morning, verses 7 and 8. As Bo read just a moment ago, we'll reread that passage. It says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. 
Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. In my estimation, prayer is the greatest untapped resource of all the universe. If we were to really be able to take hold of atomic energy, we believe that we have, but I mean really be able to take hold of it, we would not reach even the pinnacle of what prayer can do. If we were to be able to capture the power of the entire sun within itself, not just solar power, but I mean the power of the sun and bottle it, we would not even be in the beginnings of what God could do because of prayer. And these two verses... Conjoined with the context, we'll finish in just a moment going through verse 12, I believe, contained within them the greatest promise that God has ever offered. You say, I thought the promise of the Messiah was great. That's absolutely true. You say, I thought the promise of that sending of that Messiah and the fact that he did come to dwell among us, he became flesh, John 1 and 14, I thought that that was great. And if you think that, you are absolutely correct, but... What matters most to the child of God after that Savior has come and after His Word has been obeyed is our ability to pray. Three things I want you to notice from this text. Begin with, I want you to notice with me this, that the power that we must pursue called prayer is important. And it is important because there is a promise to claim. Notice the wording here. He says, ask and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Now what Jesus says here, he says in some ways in a very imperative way. What we have before us this prayer is not a matter of option. It is a matter of obligation. It's all the things we've already seen written in this Sermon on the Mount. But what he said here is imperative not only because of what we ask, but because of what he in turn gives us as a result of it. You think about men and the way that we interact with one another on a daily basis. You may come to a man or a woman, a friend of yours, even a family member, you may ask something of them, and they may give nothing in return. You may seek to find something in them, and they have nothing to return unto you, or you may even knock, and we'll talk about how that involves persistence. And again, they may offer nothing unto you. But that's never the case with God. You see, prayer is such a great thing. Prayer is such a wonderful thing that there is no substitute for it. You take, for example, a man who's very eloquent. We'll use that word to begin with. He's eloquent. He has the ability to speak. He can coordinate those vehicles of communication called words. And he can pattern them in such a way as to impress men. Well, just because he can do that, that does not replace prayer. He can't say, because I'm eloquent, I do not have to pray. At the same time, you take another word, intelligence. You take someone who knows a lot of things about many different things, about various subjects throughout our field of learning. And even you take a man who knows much about the Bible. That doesn't replace his ability, or at least it doesn't replace the obligation that he has and the need that he has for prayer. You then in turn take someone who has much energy 
And they have the ability and the stamina and the vigor to go out and to do things. And even those who oftentimes will do things to serve God and to do His commandments, that doesn't replace the fact that they need to pray. You take someone who's enthusiastic. I mean, they have a great zeal. They have a great love for God. They have a a great desire to do God's will. Again, it doesn't replace their need to pray. You say, why do you choose those things? Well, you go back and look at even the Christ. Was Christ not an eloquent individual? Certainly He was. We read this sermon here, and we understand exactly of what He speaks. Was Christ in turn not an intelligent individual? Why, He had all the wisdom and knowledge of God laying down in Him. He was the Word, the God that became flesh. But yet even Christ would pray. He had energy, had the ability to go day and night on many occasions when he prayed. That's just what he did. He prayed all the night long. And certainly he was one who was enthusiastic. Why, he would go from city to city and he would preach and he would teach and he would tell about the gospel. He would tell about the church to come and although individuals would turn against him, he would continue to proclaim those things. You see, you might lose a limb. You might lose an arm, have it to be amputated in an accident. You might get an artificial arm. You might lose your ability to speak or, or perhaps to, to hear. And you might learn sign language and learn to communicate in that way. And on and on we can go listening things that we can do without, but we can't do without prayer. And so when He makes this promise before us, He promises us that what we have in our possession is great and that what we have in our possession cannot be substituted. But someone might scratch their head and say, well, based on what we've already studied, if you want to go ahead and be looking at this over in chapter 6 and verse 8, we'll read it again. Based upon what we've already studied, why do we even have to pray to begin with? Because verse 8 of the same context, the same sermon says, Be not therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what you have need of before you ask Him. I may have told this before. I have a good friend of mine. He's been in this position and now back out of it. But for a long time, he considered himself to be a faithful child of God. But he pushed the opinion that we need not pray. He said, God knows your heart, God knows your thoughts, God knows your needs, and therefore there's no real reason to pray. If God wants to fulfill those needs and fulfill those dreams, He'll do it. And He wouldn't have much as bow His head over His food at a meal. Well, is there really nothing to pray? We mentioned already because the Sermon on the Mount has discussed it about prayer back over in the previous chapter. Likewise, we saw where the Lord came to His own disciples and therefore He taught them to pray. He gave them a pattern by which they must pray. We mentioned even then how that when we pray, we're not praying to inform God. We're not telling God what's going on down here. Certainly that verse there we just read, verse 8, supports the fact that He already knows. We're not in turn praying to instruct God. We can't tell God what to do. We can't make His decisions for Him. But what we are doing, we're praying to invite God. We're praying to call upon God to be a part of our lives. Now, there are three basic letters, if we're going to remember this, the word AIM, A-I-M. You might see it if you have your outline there that we're going to use to remember what prayer is all about. Because to begin with, when you think of prayer and what it does, and you have the one on the one hand who says, well, prayer doesn't matter because God already knows. The one on the other hand says, well, prayer does matter because we're inviting God to be a part of our lives. Likewise, we are a part of His. Notice to begin with what prayer will do. 
In John chapter 15, you'll notice it in verse 5. If you want to turn to the context here, we're going to use that as a proof text for what we're saying here. You can notice to begin with the prayer activates our faith. When I pray to God, it activates my faith. You have people sometimes who are known as having great faith, who are known as being faithful to the Lord, and all matter of terms might be used to describe them, but I dare say that any of those people who are spoken of in that way are people who turn and say, you know, I don't ever pray to God, I just don't need Him. I don't have any real reason to discuss anything with Him. No, the people who are of great faith have had their faith activated by prayer. Notice with me verse 5. He says, Jesus speaking here, he said, I am the vine, and ye are the branches, and he that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do. Surely that's not the next word. Nothing. But God, I have capabilities. I have talents, and, and they are God-endued talents. Certainly, certainly, God, I can perform certain things in this life without your help. That's not what Jesus said. He said, without me, you can do nothing. Now, how do we get in contact with God? We have to really back up and begin in verse 1 there of John 15. Notice he says, I am the vine, I am the true vine, my father is the husband. And every branch that is in me beareth forth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, and make it bring forth fruit. Notice God made, allows that to happen. And now ye are clean through the word which he has spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as I, the branch, cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. Now, when do I spend a closer time with God than when I'm in prayer? Am I closer with God when I'm out on the lake? Some people say, well, to be out in the beauty of the, of the grandeur there of God's creation, I'm closer with God. Am I closer to God on the golf course? Am I closer with God on the job? And am I even closer with God in the church? You know, there's a great misconception sometimes that the church, and I mean these four walls, is some sort of a holy sanctuary in which God dwells. They'll even misquote out of its, out of its context. Matthew chapter 18 and talk about where two or three are gathered together. God is with them in their presence. They'll say, there it is. That's what happens when the saints come together. Am I closest with God then? No, above all of that, I'm closer with God when I pray. Because when I pray, I begin to realize and begin to recognize that my faith must be activated in Him. That is, I must rely on Him. Again, the verse said, without me, ye can do nothing. But not only in this aim can you see that it activates your faith, one other thing I want you to see in this, and you really drop down to verse 7 to find it, the same context here in John 15. And that is that likewise it initiates fellowship. Certainly God is looking down upon me. Certainly God's looking down upon you. He knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows our desires and wants. But at the same time, when I pray, I initiate that fellowship. Because you drop down to verse 7, he said in that, if ye abide, and that's conditional, if ye abide in me and my words abide in you, Ye shall ask what you will. How do we ask? Through prayer. But ye shall ask what ye will. Notice it. And it 
shall be done unto you. Now, if God wanted to do good to men, certainly he could do it. If God just wanted to look down on Jim Merle and say, Jim Merle, you deserve better or you need better or whatever it is, he could give it. But he put a condition here. He says, basically, you want to put it in a personal term. Jim Merle, if you'll ask for it, I'll do it. We'll talk more about that later. So what does prayer do? If God already knows... Prayer, first of all, can activate my faith. Prayer, in turn, can initiate fellowship. But I think this is most important. I don't necessarily have a scripture for this, but I'm certain you'll see the logic in it. And that is that prayer, likewise, will motivate. Watch it. It will motivate fruit. The context here, speaking of fruit, speaking of how we bear fruit when we have a connection with God, speaking of how we're able to bear that fruit because we speak to God, shows us, in essence, that when we connect with God, we are more motivated to produce that fruit. Let me illustrate it this way. You can turn it around for you if you'd like. I'll do the young boy because I'm more familiar with that. Let's suppose you're a young man, a teenager, and you look across a room, whatever room it is, and you see what you believe to be a beautiful girl. And you've, you've been noticing her for quite a while. Maybe you know who she is. Maybe you know her character. Maybe you know a little bit about her family. And you're attracted to her, and you, you hope that she would be attracted to you. So finally, you decide. You get up enough gumption and enough nerve. You go over and you ask her. You say, hey, Mary Jane, whatever her name might be, Mary Jane, would you like to go out on a date with me? And she said, No. No, I, I, I wouldn't. You're kind of stunned. So you walk back across the room and you come up to your friend John and you say, John, I, I asked Mary Jane for a date and I, I thought, sure, I could get it. And she turned me down. She said, no. Can you help me? What's the problem? And John says, well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, you got bad breath. It's Okay. And, and, and to be honest with you, your hair's a little mussed up in the back and, and, and your clothes now. You could dress worse, I'm sure. You, you, did, you did change clothes before you came, but you could dress better. What might I do? Well, I might go home. I might uh, get a haircut, comb my hair up a little bit different. I might drink a glass of ice scope. might change clothes, put on the best, put on my Sunday shoes. I might go back again. I come, I said, Mary Jane, would you like to go out on a date? Uh, I think we could get together maybe Friday night. She said, no, I'm not interested. So I go back. I said, well, John, I did all you said to do. And she, she still turned me down. What could be the problem? He says, well, I've heard the whispers. And she says, you're just an old country bumpkin. You're going to have to be a little more impressive. So I get out an English book and certain things and I study. I won't go any further with this, but let me say something here. What did that do? It motivated me to do better. You ever wonder why sometimes you pray to God and you say, Dear God, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you help me out in this way and help me out in that? And it seems God says no, and you're puzzled, and you begin to scratch your head and rub your face, and you say, God, what's the problem? Why won't you help me? Maybe, just maybe, God's trying to motivate you and I to do better. Prayer will do that. Every time I come before the throne of God and ask something of Him, whether He says yes, no, maybe, see you tomorrow, or whatever it is, I might check and say, well, before I get too worried about this, let me see what I can change about my life. 
That's what prayer can do. So in this, what do we know? Well, we see there is a promise to claim. This is a power that we must pursue because there is a promise to claim. But notice what's in the text back over here in Matthew chapter 7. I want you to focus, and you can easily focus on it because it's about all that's said. Focus on these three words. The first one being ask. The second word being seek. And the third one being knock. Now you may just see that and you may say, well, this is three different ways that Jesus illustrates a prayer. One prays and he only asks. Another prays and he only seeks. Another might pray and he or she knocks. Well, this is an illustration of what every man ought to do themselves continually. When we get through this, you'll understand if you don't already that this is a progressive thing. What are we talking about? Well, this is a power that we must pursue because... There is a process to follow. You know, in the previous text, I'm talking back over in chapter 6, chapter 5 and 6, we took note of a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and he told them exactly what words to use and how to pray. My Father which is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses. All that was said. He gave us some words. And from that we could draw a certain process, but from here he gives us a three-step process. I've not been involved in this, but I understand if you're addicted to drugs or alcohol, they may have a 12-step process. This is only three. Notice the first one, ask. What does it mean to ask? Well, the way I define this, for my memory's sake at least, is that when we ask, there is a desire that is explained or expressed. There's a desire that is explained or expressed. What do I mean by that? Well, again, God knows what we have need of before we ask, but when we do ask, we can plead our case. Now, you may not want to see it that way. I don't really want to think about it in that way, and, and that I do understand God knows my heart, but isn't it nice when you come before someone to ask them for something? Let's suppose this happened for just a moment. Let's just say I walked up to an individual on the street, and I said, can you help me? And they said, no. I said, okay, thanks. Would that, that seem like the best I could do? No. No, I'd come up and I'd say, can you help me? they say, no. And I'd say, well, what I really need now, it's, it's not much. What I really need from you today, I need $5. I hadn't eaten in three or four days, and I need $5. And, and I promise you, if you don't trust me, matter of fact, if you could just go in the local store, just right here, go in and maybe pick me up a bag of chips and a drink. I'd be happy with that, just whatever it is. Now, can you help me? They say, well, no. I said, well... Again, I'm not trying to be dishonest here. I'm trying to tell you the truth. I lost my job back two weeks ago, and I've been, and I can continue to ask. I can continue to explain or to, to express to the person what my needs really are. Well, that's what we can do and what we are to do with God. And someone says, well, that's a matter of option. Maybe you don't want to go into detail. Maybe you want to pray to God and say, God, you know what I need, so give it to me. You know we're commanded to pray? One of the contexts we're going to go to in a few moments, Luke 18, verse 1 
tells us, it quotes the words of Jesus there, and he says there as a way of command that men ought to always pray and faint not. I continue to use the word. It's not a matter of option or opinion. It's a matter of obligation. Now, why is that important? Well, James gives us a lot of insight. You can turn here if you'd like. I won't spend too much time on it at all. But James gives us a lot of insight. James 1 and verse 5. Because in James 1 and verse 5, he gives us an example of a particular instance when something is needed. Now, the need here is wisdom. In James 1 and verse 5, he says, If any of you, not just some of you, but if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He continues to explain that when one asks, God give it to all men liberally. You ask God for wisdom, he turns around and gives it to you. So it's commanded. And then we turn and we see that, that yes, there's something that can come out of that. Now if you want to turn another page or so over to James chapter 4 and verse 2, we find out a bit more about this. And in James 4 and verse 2, you find out how it is that we ask. And when we ask, we have to be persistent even in it. We'll notice it here. He says, you lust and you have not. You kill and you desire to have. And you cannot obtain. You fight and you war. Watch this. Yet you have not because you ask not. Let's put all that together. First, the Lord says men ought to always pray that he faint not. You've got to pray. Then James says, i tell you what you ought to pray for to begin with. You ought to pray for, to begin with and above all, wisdom. Because if you had the wisdom to know what to ask for, that's the essence of this. If you had the wisdom to know what to ask for, you could get more of your prayers answered. And then he says, if you're complaining because you're not getting what you want from God, it's probably because you're not asking. Again, to take the illustration from a moment ago, what if I just walk up to a man on the street and I just stare him in the eyes? I never say a word. I don't even say I need help. I just stare at him. And I think to myself, this is the man that's going to help. He's got it. He's got the $5. He can help me. I don't say a word. What's he going to do? Not one thing. So we have ask. The first part of this process is to ask, and that gives us a reminder that there is a desire to be explained or to be expressed. But not only that, it keeps going. It says, seek. What does it mean to seek? Well, that is a discovery experienced. You know, sometimes you ask something of someone, and they say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll help you out by tomorrow. By tomorrow, I'll have done whatever it is that you desire to do. And you wake up the next morning and you say, now I wonder if they did that. I wonder if they were able to help. I wonder if there's any evidence that they did help. What do you do? You go look. I don't know exactly how to illustrate it, but you go and you check and you see. Maybe call them and say, were you able to do that? You know what you promised? Well, yes, I did. We have to seek God. We ask something of God after we ask it, and I hate to get back into James too much, but there's a lot much said in the book of James about this, about how we have to ask in faith. That is the implication there that when we ask of God, we have faith that He did or will at least fulfill it in some way, in some form. We have to seek. We got to say, dear God, I need this or I want that, whatever it is, and then we have to just turn and look and say, okay, God, have you done it yet? 
Is it ready? Have you made a decision on that? We have to continue to seek. That's what he says. So you seek after something. What do we actually seek, though? Well, begin with, you can note we seek the presence of God. James 4 and verse 8 says, Draw nigh unto God, and I will draw nigh unto you. If I come to God in prayer, if I have that close relationship to God that it takes to pray, then God in turn gets closer and closer to me. Now think about this. I know you've all played a game. Sometimes it's played with water balloons or eggs or whatever it is. We just played it with footballs most time. No damage done that way where two people get, I don't know, eight, ten feet apart and they start throwing the ball and every time you catch it, you take a step back and a step back and a step back. Well, the rules that we have made up is if you miss the ball, you've got to take a step forward. I say that to say this, I miss the ball all the time and I need to be going forward every time. God's going to be standing still. So you seek. So you seek His presence. But i tell you what else. You seek His power. Because again, we look to James 5 and 16. He says, pray one for another that you may be healed for the effectual and fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And the Alabama-Mississippi translation, it does a lot of good because God's powerful. Imagine with me for a moment that we can envision prayer the way we see so many other things. You can imagine, or I hope that it wouldn't happen, but let's just say that a member of your family ha- has been murdered. They've been killed. And so let's suppose that they, they catch the person nearby immediately that's done the crime, and they have them in, in a local jail, and the trial's upcoming, and finally the trial day comes. What do you do? You go to trial, and they go through all the trial, and you're certain that they did it. The whole community's certain that this person committed the crime. The police have the evidence. The lawyers have displayed the evidence. All these things go, go just as best that they can. And at the end of the day, the judge looks and says, Well, I, there's been a lot of evidence presented here, but I'm just not sure this man did it, so we're going to set him free. Now, what would you, as the family member's reaction, be to that? Well, he's a judge. That's all it might know. We go to a higher court. If I could see prayer for what it is, and that is that I'm pleading my case before the highest court of all the universe, how I would seek I would understand the power that God possesses because let me tell you one thing that prayer is that we don't necessarily imagine that it is, at least all the time. Prayer is war with God. Satan comes into your life. He tempts you. He tries you. He does whatever he can to make you to stumble, to fall. And he's sitting there and he's laughing because more times than not, if you're like me, I'm saying, oh, Satan, I've got your number. I can take you out. You can't overcome me. I might even reference God. God's got my back. Satan still, he's not worried. But I can only imagine if I were to hit my knees, whether it be physically or at least proverbially in prayer, and beg of God, God help me with this Satan. Help me with this sin. Satan would just wander away. Resist the devil. That means fight him. And he will flee from you. No better way of resisting than to resist him with all of the power of God. But not only here does he say to ask, 
and to me that reveals a desire that is to be expressed or explained. Then he turns and tells us to seek, and that speaks of a discovery that is to be experienced. We've got to find the presence and the power of God to really know what God would have for us to do. But notice the last one. And knock. Knock. What does that mean? Friends, that describes, in my estimation at least, a determination that is expressed. My determination has to be known by God in order for my prayers to be effective. Now, I scratch my head all the time. We'll talk more about this in a few moments. When I pray to God and I say, God, I've I've told you about this before. I know that you already know it. I've told you about this before, and if you'll just answer this prayer, God, I won't bother you anymore. Or maybe I complete praying for something. Maybe I pray two, three, four, five times for it, and I walk away and I say, well, maybe I just need to leave God alone. Give Him some time. I don't want to give God the impression that I do not have faith in Him. So I wonder, when do I pray and when do I not? Well, notice some of these ideas. First of all, when we think about prayer, we have before us an explanation of this knocking. If you want to know what Jesus means by saying ask, seek, and knock, you don't have to go very far other than to find another account of the same thing. Now, whether it be Luke accounting the exact same sermon, being the Sermon on the Mount, I assume that he is, or whether it be the fact, many occasions you see Jesus, as I say, preach the same sermon more than once to different individuals, different crowds, even sometimes for various reasons. Well, we gain insight. Turn to the book of Luke, chapter 11. This seems to be a parallel account of what's said here, but I think a little bit more is revealed, at least revealed by reading its context. Read with the beginning in verse 5. Jesus speaking here, and it says, And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and go unto him at midnight, and shall say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves? And a friend of mine is in the journey that came, that has come unto me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he, when he is within, shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, and I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give thee, because he is, is his friend, yet because he of his importunity, now we don't understand that word we'll mention in a moment, because of his importunity, he will rise and shall give him as many as he needeth. Now we'll just stop right there because I want to tie it in just a moment. Let's illustrate what was just said. You're sitting around the house. It's nearing midnight later than most of us might be willing to open our doors unto people, but it's nearing midnight, and you hear a knock. And it's a guest. You open the door, and the guest comes in, and, and, and you say to them, you know, what are you doing? They say, well, I've been traveling from this place to that. I need a place to stay. I need my belly to be filled. And so you might turn to your wife, and you say, well, honey, can you get something together? He needs a couple of loaves of bread here. We need to fix something for him. We'll give him a nice place to lay down. And she says, I don't have it. We don't have any more. We don't have any food. And you say, well, I've already let him in. He's sitting on the couch. I told him I would fix him some food. She said, well, you shouldn't have said that. So you go next door to your friend's house. And, and you knock. He said, who is it? And you say, well, it's me, your friend Jim. Go away. It's me, 
You need to help me. I've got a guest and, and, and I promised him some food, but we don't have any food. I need to borrow some bread. Just give me three loaves. That'll be more than enough. And he said, I said, go away. I need your help, please. Now you've got to remember, in this day and time, I mean first century of which Jesus speaks here, the houses were much different than ours today. They were typically one room, maybe one room that had been divided into two, but that was about it. And the doors that adorned these houses were oriental-style doors, and they had very complicated locks. And you can hear the man in the back of the house crying out. And he said, I said, go away. I said, go away. The children are in bed, and if you wake the baby... By the way, they kept their animals indoors with him most nights. You imagine if the cows or the goats or the sheep get riled up, what will happen? But he continues to knock. And then the Bible said, because of your impertuity, the word there means your shameless persistence, he answers and he fulfills your need. How can I be sure that has anything to do with what we're seeing in Matthew chapter 7, the very next verse? We read verses 5 through 8, verse 9 said, And I say unto you, after using that by way of parable, I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For every one, verse 10, that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. What else could Jesus be speaking of? He's talking about prayer. He said, when you pray, you knock, and you knock, and you knock. You be persistent with it. God's not looking down and saying, oh, that, that, that's Jim again. Let me guess what he wants. Jennifer said she went to eat Old Mexico the other night. And uh, they, they came and they brought their stuff to the table and they brought an extra glass of tea. I wasn't even there. They thought they knew what we needed. God knows what we need. And God's not aggravated, if you will, put out when we continue to ask because he instructs us. Ask. Seek. And knock. I'll give you another one. Luke chapter 18, a few pages over. In the context we mentioned a moment ago, and he spake a parallel unto them, I'm in verse 1, to this end, that men ought to always pray and faint not. Saying that there was in a city a judge who feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, Though I fear not God, don't regard man, yet because this woman, watch the next couple of words, because this woman troubleth me, I will avenge her. I'll do what she wants, lest by her continual coming she weary me. You say, okay, that's a picture of God. We drive him crazy and he, no. That's a picture that illustrates what even the evil man, the man who despises, doesn't care anything, doesn't regard God at all. If you keep on and you keep on and you're persistent in prayer, he gives you what you want. Now he goes on to say, we won't read it, verses 6 on through verse 8, which basically says, you think if that man will give you what you want through persistence, wouldn't God do the same? The answer is yes. So we have this determination that is expressed. It's expressed by the way of explanation. I'll tell you something else. It's expressed by the way of example. 
We mentioned it already a moment ago about Jesus, Matthew chapter 16, verse 39, verse 42, and verse 44. You find out when Jesus went in the garden, how many times did he pray? Three. How many times did he change the subject or the want or the desire of his prayer? None. Every time. He said, to Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Now, if the Lord God of heaven needed to pray, he needed to pray again and again and again, certainly I do. I think about a Syrophoenician woman. We refer to her. The Bible calls her a Phoenician. Matthew chapter 15, verses 22 to 28. She's illustrated there, and then she comes to Jesus, and she wants something from him. She has a desire from him. Jesus basically turns to her and says, Get away, woman. I've been sent to the house of Israel and I don't have to give to you dogs. He called her a dog. She was a Gentile. We we won't get into that, but he wasn't being that derogatory in that. Matter of fact, his own disciples before that had already told her to go away. Jesus doesn't have time for you. You know, she crawled up there and said, Eve and a rich man would allow the dogs, and she used the word men, old sorry mutt, to eat the crumbs from the table. You know what Jesus did? He granted unto her her need because she was persistent. We see the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, given a thorn in the flesh, apparently by God, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. Paul prays and it says, and thrice, thrice he says, I beseech or I beg of you, God, that you take this thorn away. Now, did God take it away? No, not according to the text. But he didn't say, you know, I don't want to bother God anymore about this. Paul may not have been there uh, during the Sermon on the Mount, but I'm certain he understood it. Ask, seek, and knock. Now that's the explanation, the examples. What about the extent? This is where I really have to think. You see, God answers men in various ways. I wish I had the time or, or was willing to take the time to tell you about the times in my life. You could say the same, I'm sure, of when God directly answered your prayers. God, I need this. I need that. There it is. No mistaking it. No way to explain it away. No way to say, well, that must just have been a happenstance. God must have done it. God will answer your prayers directly. On other occasions, God will answer your prayers differently. You ask for one thing, God gives you another. I can admit this, maybe uh, maybe no one back home will hear this. My mother and I ran to Walmart the other night, had to pick up some prescriptions, were in a hurry. Saw some family friends on the next aisle. It's, it's our fault. We ran on by right quick, and both of us said, we've got to get out of here, and if we get tied up with them, we came on. We came out of Walmart. Walmart always has two doors. We came out the door on the other end of the store. And I said when we went out the door, let's go out this end because we don't need to bump into anybody. And lo and behold, guess who did the same thing? We met right there in the front. Now, I hadn't prayed about that, but if I had, God would have answered it differently. Because I was in my mind praying, God, don't let me get held up. And God said, I'll show you what you need to do. Be friendly to everybody. Sometimes God answers prayers in that way. Sometimes they are delayed. You pray to God and say, God, I need this and that. I need it tomorrow. He said, you'll get it next month, next year. You'll get it in eternity. 
And sometimes they're just outright denied. You ask something of God, and God says, no, you're not going to get it. That's how God answers prayers. But when do I stop? What am I to do? Well, I'll give you one thing you can do. When God puts it in your hand, you can stop. When you pray for something, and here it is, it would be easy to stop then. But what do you do? You thank Him. I'll tell you something else. When God puts it in your heart, you can stop. You've prayed to God. Maybe you've been, you've asked, you've seeked, you've knocked, you've been persistent, but there just comes a time when you finally say, God, I know you know what's best for me. I know you're going to do what you do. And so, God, I'm just going to wait. And I know in my heart you'll answer my prayer. You can stop. But you better thank Him. And then there's times, as we just mentioned, when God says, no, that's not what you need. And then it's time to stop, but to thank Him. Some of the greatest answers I've ever received in my prayers, I'll assure you, have been no. I found my own way. I know how things need to go. And God said, no. And my life was much improved by that. So what do we have? Under the heading of a power that we must pursue, we first have there's a promise to claim. Certainly prayer is a great thing that all of us must and should take hold of. We have likewise that there is in that a process to follow. No need to pray after your own pattern when we have the pattern of the God of heaven right here before us. He tells us what and how to do it. But finally, we close this morning by saying there is a provision to enjoy. Go back to your text if you're not there. Matthew chapter 7, we read already verses 7 and 8, but verse 9 continues and says this. It's an illustration of what ought to be done. But he says, Or what man is there of you of whom if his son should ask bread, would he give him a stone? He goes on in verse 10 and says, or ask of a fish, will he give him a serpent? And you say, well, no, no. When your children ask for something, you try to give them what they want. And, and certainly if it's a need, you would give it correctly. Verse 11, if ye, then being evil. Now God's not saying all men are evil, but we're evil compared to and in the sight of God at times. If ye being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask Him? Now, a verse we take and apply it to different contexts, maybe you can pull it out, but I think we ought to leave it, verse 12. Therefore, all things and whatsoever you would do unto men should do unto you, do even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's what we call the golden rule. But what do we learn here? There is a provision to enjoy. And the first part of the provision is this, that God's provisions are accurate. God doesn't give you something else. God gives you what you need every time. The illustration, he says, what if a boy came and said, God, give me some bread. Now in Palestine, the stones, river stones as we see them, and the bread, the wafers that they would often make in the kitchens, they were very similar. When you find Satan himself tempting Jesus, he said to turn these stones unto bread. 
It's not by happenstance. Many a man who were in need mistook, until they touched them at least, the stones for bread. He said, God's not going to give you the wrong thing. Now you say, well, a lot of times I pray for the wrong thing. I want the wrong thing. Well, you need to pray to God to fix your wanter. That's where the wisdom comes in from long before. You've got to know about God and be a part of God and abide with God in order to have your wanter fixed that you may want the right things. But He gives what's right. It's accurate. I'll tell you something else. It's abundant. The verse that we just read, the latter part of verse 11, If then ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask of him? God will give you the right thing, and he will give you more than the right thing. And therefore prayer is important because of that. There are a few people in the world, I, I know there are many who are Christians, who if you ask something of them, you say, can you do this small thing? They'll do this and that, and they'll go farther. But the majority of the world's not that way. You ever had anyone ask you to do something or to say something on their behalf? And you say, well, that don't sound right, but I'll do what they say. And the whole time you're thinking, well, it's not going to work out the way they thought. But they, they, it's what they wanted. They'll get what they deserve. God doesn't think of you that way. God gives accurate gifts and he gives abundant gifts. Friends, this is a power we must pursue. If my prayer life is not what it ought to be, if I have not understood these things, there's no better time to make those things correct in my life than right now. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. One thing we have not mentioned at this point, but we'll mention now, is that God does not hear. Scripture proves that God does not hear the prayers of the unrighteous or the sinful. If my life is not right with God, if I have not obeyed Him to the fullness of what He requires of me, God doesn't hear my prayers. I can ask, seek, I can knock. There will be no answer. But if I'm a child of His, abiding in the vine, as ye are the branches, John 15, I can have those things to be answered. And have those things to be answered rightly. Not in my sight, but in the sight of God. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. I hope through faith, through repenting of your sins, through confessing the name of Christ, and putting Him on in baptism, that's to have your sins to be washed away. You can come in a connection with God. You can abide with Him, and He abide in you, and your prayers can be effective. Many a heathen in the world, to say it that way, not implying any of you are, but many a heathen pray to God. But I dare say they ever get the answers that they desire. But those who live and abide in God will and can. If you're here this morning, you are a child of God. And for whatever reason, you haven't upheld your end of that. You haven't stayed with God. Maybe a prayer that's gone unanswered has discouraged you. Be encouraged to know it has been answered. And that perhaps what you have received from God is, it will be, the best thing that you could receive. If you've been amiss in your prayer life or in any other way to God, I hope and pray that you come now as we stand and as we sing.